The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 45 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 19th of July, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I am joined by the infamous Captain Roger. Together, we describe what flight operation changes we are experiencing on the flight line, Roger tells us about his turbulent descent into Eagle, Colorado. We share a few stories from our past, and we also discuss the changes to the mask requirements on board U.S. airlines, the suspension of alcohol service, and much, much more. It has been a while since our last show, and that's because our flight schedules have been very busy for us. And for that, I know I and the Squawk Ident crew have been very grateful. We will dive into all of it and more on this, the 45th episode of Squawk Ident. So whether you're driving into work, chilling at home, or taking a break from binge-watching your favorite TV shows, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to start off the show today by taking a moment to recognize all of the frontline professionals out there. To everyone here in North America and around the world that continue to brave the challenges surrounding all of us right now in order to keep us all healthy and safe. From all of us here at Squawk Ident Podcast to all of you, thank you for all that you do. Joining me today on the Squawk Ident Podcast is an exceptional aviator. He is a professional CFI, I, MEI flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 pilot, a Western Great Bird Strike survivor, a King Air instructor, and a corporate pilot as well. From his fortress of isolation from somewhere in San Diego, please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how the heck are you? Oh, as always, we're hanging in there. Can't complain too much. State of the world's a little crazy, but we just keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy how bombarded we are with all of this news, if you want to call it, it really that, is. panic-stricken, uh, you know, information overload here. Uh, what's? It, it's really tough. And not only is it tough on us as adults and professionals in the industry, it's also tough on the people around us, our children, our family, and our friends as well. And now, more than ever, is a great time to kind of pull together and just remind each other that we got each other's backs. I mean, it's kind of crazy how much 
I hate to say the word hate, but that's really what it is. A fear there and is hate. A lot of that. And we need to get so, yeah, fear. past all that. I mean, because that's where that's where hate comes from, is from fear. And you know, I see it on the flight line. I see it at work. I see it at home. I see it when we're out and about gallivanting and you know, trying to get some fresh air and some nature uh, you know, drives in and and yet people are scared. Um, you know, I, I, I hold on to this eternal hope that, you know, obviously there's been a lot of upheaval um, on multiple fronts within the last six months. And, and maybe, hopefully, maybe we'll learn something from this. And we'll, we, we really will this time, you know, we said we, we say that all the time, but all, all kinds of things. But we will this time come out of this a, a better, stronger, you know, more tight knit nation community, you know, of some kind. Yeah, we, we have to. We absolutely have to, because, you know, all of this we're going through, I mean, some of it, it's about damn time. I mean, in terms of the the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on, all of the corruption and bad training and bad decision making that is happening around the world with the people that have the authority in, in a criminal scene, which are the police, I mean, it's, it was just the straw that broke the camel's back, I think, on this one. Um, and, and my heart's out to all the people that have to, you know, deal with all these situations firsthand. And, and I also, you know, I'm very supportive of the police department. Um, I think that there are, and I hate to use the word bad seeds because that's an excuse and I don't want to make an excuse for anyone. There are people that make bad decisions that have been trained poorly uh, that are put in a situation where they make a bad decision and now the world is watching with cell phones on in every pocket there's a movie studio in everyone's pocket and they're just ready to film anything um and it, we're all under the microscope even even as airline pilots we're under the microscope if we say something incorrectly if we're not wearing our uniform correctly i mean it could be as as peddly as you know someone that's not following a procedure and now they're being filmed and they end up on YouTube or Twitter or God forbid CNN or, or Fox or, or what have you. So we all have to kind of watch our back and do the right thing and, you know, hopefully rely on our training and do things to SOP, which is standard operating procedures. And those that don't need to be held accountable. And unfortunately right now the world is watching our police departments around the world saying enough is enough you treat everyone fairly and stop putting uh you know black lives at risk where you know they're getting pulled over for something that's minuscule and because of whatever opinions or or whatever actions that have been deemed okay as necessary force in the past are are no longer that and it's spilling over in every aspect uh, of the world. Um, some of the, some of the podcasts that I listen to talk about the, uh, noodle shaming or noodle guns. Um, this is stemmed from a video from years ago, I think more like four or five years ago, where a young man who was working in a noodle restaurant, uh, noodle world, I think it was, <laughs> is being filmed and gets on the internet and on national television as well saying, that he has rights as an employee and he's sick and tired of his boss treating him like, you know, he's substandard because he's telling him what to do and he shouldn't have to tell him what to do. And it became a big giant shaming of, of the boss 
saying, my boss can't, you know, dictate when I do things and stuff. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> so th- this stemmed into a kind of a societal opinion of how, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not doing what we like as a group, that we're going to shame you into changing the way things are. And in many ways, this is a good policy uh, to question uh, authority, question the way things have been going on for years. And in another way, it can, that too can be noodling can be very much taking advantage of the situation as well. So here we are in a, in a time and place in this world where we have all of it and it's all circulating continuously on the, on the streaming news media and we just need to get past it. So we need to learn from it. We need to grow from it, but more importantly, we need to adjust our thinking and, and start taking care of each other and getting down to really the basics of the golden rule. We talked about this last time, the golden rule, take care of each other like the way you would want to be treated. Um, but enough about that. We have a podcast here about aviation and we talk about the journey in aviation. And this is what we're focusing on every week. And it's been a little bit since our last show, uh, Roger, what's it been like nine, 10 days. Um, and that's been, it's been a week and a half or so. Yeah, it's and it's because we've been busy. We've been flying. And it's been kind of a hectic schedule, at least for me. Uh, I did like a six-day stint and a couple days off and then another two-day stint. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but a lot of back and forth to the airport and trying to recuperate that sleep after, you know, short overnights and whatnot. So, but you were telling me you been doing a little bit of flying yourself what can you tell me about that it's it's picked up a little bit um you know i've had some work uh a little some behind the scenes stuff not so much flying that actually has been going on for the past one or two weeks uh well i I also did have a a flight just the other day that turned into a rather long day for us um having to go make you make an intermediate stop and then the plane got left behind so then we also had to airline home and it did turn into it was about a 16 hour day when all was said and done. Nice. Um, you know, obviously we weren't flying the last two legs, but you know, even as a passenger, when you're when you're flying two legs on a commercial commercial airline, it you know it it does take time. And I was I definitely slept well that night. I am happy. I am happy to say. Um, and then you know we got we dropped him off, and then we're going to go pick up pick up our client just next week because he's going to be out there for a week. So we got that coming up also. And then there's a couple of things that are scheduled going into July as well. So it's slowly picking up for us, you know, still not pre pre pandemic, I guess, as the saying goes, but um, there are glimmers of hope for now, at least. So that's been good. Yeah. So let's get into the details here uh, because a lot of our listeners may not realize the difference between airline schedules and a part 91 private owner schedule. And you've given us a little bit of that in the past, but let's talk about this trip specifically. How did your trip start? Did you get a phone call saying, okay, I got something for you or was it scheduled in advance? So most of our stuff is scheduled in advance and, you know, in the private part 91 world, um, there's a lot of variability in the different jobs in terms of what you were just talking about scheduling um what kind of and how that's all going to work 
some people in the more charter side, they can get phone calls last minute. We do not. We are fortunate. Uh, We're very fortunate. I will even put it that way that almost all of our stuff is scheduled at least a week and more typically two or even three weeks in advance. I had known that this trip was coming up, fine tuning the details about exactly what time of day we were going to be leaving and maybe a day or two um, shifted here or there. But I knew that this trip had been coming up. So we had geared up for it. I knew that it was coming. I found out about this particular trip at least a week and a half in advance of the day. However, I didn't find out exactly what time we were leaving until the day before. And actually, as an example of that, we had a plan. We were going to be flying from the LA area into um, the Eagle, Colorado airport. And then the I think it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, the day before we left, it changed and we added an intermediate stop in the Denver area. And that changed all kinds of stuff for us um, because then we were going to actually leave the airplane in Eagle and then we had to get ourselves back home. Well, now we weren't going to be able to make the flight, and that kind of turned into um, all kinds of logistical, a lot of logistical changes. Yeah. So we know that that flight's coming up, but then some things, you know, for business, for our our client, um, you know, business can sometimes change, and we obviously have to be able to accommodate that and change things on the fly. And so what we did was we we went from L.A., we flew to the Denver area where we stopped, and we were there for about an hour and a half and then made the short flight over to Eagle. And then we caught a commercial airline flight uh, back through Denver and then on home to San Diego and got home at about 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. So was the airplane starting out in San Diego? Is that where you kicked off out of? Our airplane is based in the San Diego area. And so mm-hmm. it, it basically always starts with a, a reposition leg from the San Diego area up to the LA area where we will pick up passengers and then fly them to wherever they happen to be going. Okay. So you start out, you go, you, you fly out to the airport where the airplane is based and you have to do the pre-flight, the flight planning, uh, weather, you know, checking the weather and file a flight plan on that or is it VFR? No, we do. We always go IFR. Um, it's always the same thing. Uh, it's the, we file an IFR and all that flight planning is done the day before. So everything's been, um, you know, there's computer programs that will do that for you. Um, weather's been checked the day before flight plans has been checked to be filed automatically the day before. And so we show up and like you were saying, yeah, we do the pre-flight. We've got a mechanic that's there. We push the airplane out of the hangar. We fuel, um, in the San Diego area. And so basically by the time we get to, to LA where we're going to do our pickup. We're pretty much ready to go. We'll do a couple last minute things. Typically we'll have the lab serviced, um, you know, as close to boarding as possible Mm. and, and we'll go from there, but most everything is taken care of, um, before we actually even start the trip in the San Diego area. Okay. So it's all, and it's some, someone does that all for you or, or is that something you have to do? Nope. That is all our responsibility. And that's one of those big differences between the airlines and the, the part 91 corporate private world is that there are no dispatch departments. There's no crew scheduling. We, we do all of that. We are responsible for all of that. Um, as well as any catering stack, um, making sure that they have food or whatever drink in the back mm-hmm. and as well as cleaning the airplane, we are also responsible for, for cleaning the, the back of the airplane as well. So there's a little bit more work that goes into 
any given leg uh, in the corporate side, we arguably probably work a little bit less frequently, but every time we do have a trip, it's, it, it does require a little bit more work, yeah. especially when you start getting into the international um, because all of that still is going to come on. That's our responsibility to take care of that as well. And that definitely adds, yeah, add some legwork, if you will. A lot more paperwork filing in that, in that scenario. There is, because yeah. obviously you don't want to just be flying into foreign countries without knowing exactly what you're getting into. Yeah. So, and then have, have any of the cleaning processes changed uh, or from this COVID situation that you were doing before to now, or is it pretty much because it's a private jet that it's pretty much standard cleaning? It's a pretty much standard cleaning. We do things a little bit differently. Um, but in the end, you know, by when we clean the airplane and then we typically will clean the airplane after the trip, which then means that the airplane is going to sit for, you know, days before it's going to be, be flown again. And we do the big, the, the big thing that has changed is we have um, definitely mitigated how much we are in the back of the aircraft as much as possible. Mm. Um, but we don't really clean the airplane any different. It's the same people for the most part that are in that are in the cabin. We're not, we don't have a constant, you know, rotation of different people that are going, coming on, deplaning, and then we put on new people. We, we know who's going to be in the back of the airplane. That doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have the airplane professionally detailed and sterilized and cleaned um, when we started flying more after this. Uh, but other than that, you know, we, we, we clean pretty much the same way. We just try and keep ourselves out of the back as much as possible, much more now than we did before. Yeah. So you took off out of the San Diego area, ended up going to, is it Los Angeles International? You go over there to the... We go to, we go into Van Nuys. Oh, into Van Nuys. Yeah. So you go there, you pick up your, your owner, your client. Um, Correct. And... Is that a, a pretty quick stopover or, I mean, there's no fueling involved, is there? Or, or do you top off the tanks or do anything like that? No, we're all pre-fueled. It's usually, I mean, for us, it's generally about an hour because we're going to try and get there in case something happens. We're, we'll try and be there approximately an hour before um, he has told us that he's going to show up. And then we'll do the labs. And then it, we typically have plenty of time to then program the aircraft just like you guys do at the airlines, um, pr- program all of the the avionics and the automation, and we have plenty of time to get that done. And then past that, a lot of it is actually just kind of waiting. You know, maybe we'll restock the ice, but other than that, it's just it's a preventative. In order to not get there last minute, we we usually have an hour, but it's a slow it's a slow paced hour. Yeah. Okay. So you went from LA and you went to a stop where was your intermediate? We went to Rocky mountain, Rocky mountain airport. And how was that going in there? Towards, well, that was your typical coming over the Rockies from the West. It was a little bit breezy over the, over the mountains and it was pretty bumpy coming down. Um, Definitely a little bit exciting. Got rocked around a little bit. That was pretty uneventful. We did get a runway change, which was somewhat interesting. They they switched runways about four times in the span of two hours um, because of because of changing winds. And so we got cleared for one approach and then got re-cleared for another. That's not that that wasn't too big of a deal. Um, 
And so then we landed and then we stayed with the airplane. We were there for about an hour and a half. So we left the APU running, the airplane powered up. It was in the mid nineties there, um, that day. Wow. So it's pretty warm. So we kept the APU running, um, which allowed us to, to run the air conditioning. And that way we don't need to depower all the avionics, which requires reinitialization. Um, we just kept it running. It was right about an hour and a half. And then he was showed up right about on time, right? When he told us he had, when he had left. And then we blasted off and uh, attempted to make the, the flight into Eagle. And that was really where things got not exciting, but they were definitely they were definitely a little bit different than your standard 120 mile flight, which I think is about the distance from Denver into Eagle. Oh wow, yeah, real short. So, yeah, yep, short flight. Um, you know, we were we were flying; everything was fine. We 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 climbed really well. We climbed over the mountains, and we were going along our flight path, flight plan route. And then, you know, unfortunately, there was something that happened at the airport down in Eagle, and it was it was windy. As I re- as I recall, it was it was around 30, 30 gusting at thirty nine knots or something like that at nice. one point. And so it was. I mean, it's definitely a little bit of a breezy day, and I, you know, I, I I I'm not really sure what was going on. I don't know whether this guy just was was out trying to practice or whether he he thought he was really you know, was ready for it, but there was a tailwheel airplane that ended up ground looping that effectively closed the single airport or single runway, excuse me, wow. in Eagle. And it happened right after we had taken off. And so, you know, normally I, I would guess that if the runway's closed and you're only going that that amount of time that they'd call the tower, hey, you know, just hold them on the ground. Right. But we were already en route and we were we were only about 40 miles from the airport and we got the words that, that I had not heard. And I don't even know how many years and, you know, prepare to copy holding instructions, What? which strikes fear in the hearts of every aviator out there because, well, we don't hold anymore. Hold, hold like pause. Yes. Like you pause the simulator. <laughs> exactly. So we're going <laughs> to hold, hold the simulator for me. Right. And so there we were, it, it was my leg and I was flying and, you know, the, the first thing that I did, you know, as soon as you hear holding, well, you know what, this is, there's no reason to be going 320 knots at this point. And so I started slowing down and we got a hold and we were holding over the Kremlin VOR, which is just a little bit to the north of, of Eagle. Hmm. And, you know, fortunately, you know, in a lot of these, these corporate jets, we have, you know, fairly sophisticated automation. And I just clicked on in our flight plan. I had to add Kremlin because it actually wasn't on there. Added Kremlin and then clicked on it and just entered the holding instructions and let the airplane do its thing. As published. We, we were 20 miles because I remember <laughs> looking at the DME thinking, oh, how long do I have to do this? And we had 20 miles. We had, plenty of, we had plenty of time and it was just a, a matter of entering a few numbers into there making sure that we obviously got the right numbers, compared the picture because we had a nice pretty picture on our INAV screen and making sure it was an hold as published and so that it looked like the same as it did on our on our in route charts. And we both both pilots confirmed that it looked okay and then slowed the airplane down and let the airplane do its things. And we got permission for 10 mile legs and we did end up holding for a good 45 minutes. Oh, um, yeah. 
you know, there's all kinds of things that you can talk about in terms of what we talked about up front, in terms of what other airplanes were doing. There were two airplanes, one in front of us that diverted. There was one that came in and hold, held after us, and that one also diverted. We had enough fuel to hold for five hours, so at that point, it really came down to, you know, what do our passengers want to do? Um, and we were about ready to give up. We were kind of just waiting to find out if it was going to take them 10 minutes or whether it was going to take them two hours. Because obviously we don't want to be burning that kind of gas for two hours. Right. And unfortunately, right about the time where we were trying to, you know, figure out, well, do we need to go somewhere else? They told us that the airport was going to be opening momentarily. Um, as, as it so happened, our flight, our commercial flight, uh, at this point, our, our commercial flight left at four in the afternoon. And we were holding at, 3 10 in the afternoon oh and so that's the that's only flight out of eagle yeah. so yeah we're, we're kind of we're kind of running up against the you know we're going to miss our flight yeah and and i only bring that up because it made this a little bit i, I more fun in the end um and so we were holding at twenty thousand feet over the kremlin vor doing circles in the sky and we could see the airport you know, as we were turning, as you know, if we we're obviously oriented the right direction, we could see the airport, and they told us that the airport was going to open, and when we were ready to let them know, and I told the other guy because it was my leg, and I said, "I've got the field in sight. Let them know." He called the field in sight, and we were we we exited the hold as we were cleared for the visual approach. We had not stopped holding. Because I we called the field in sight from twenty thousand feet, and she cleared us from the approach from the hold. Yep, and then it was. And, Let's go. And that, that's <laughs> right. I've got a I've got a flight to make. Now we're at twenty thousand feet. Now, it, granted, that's about fourteen thousand feet above ground level when you're at, at Eagle. Sure. Don't quote me on that number, but it's probably pretty close to that. Um, and basically, just dive bombed the airport. I I had it in sight. Um, and, and got to fly the airplane. And, and that's something that's a little bit different, especially probably for you guys flying at the airlines where you guys are going into big airports. You probably just get vectored for an ILS and let your automation do most of the stuff. But I clicked off from 20,000 feet. I clicked off the autopilot. I clicked off the auto throttles, pulled them all the way back and just started headed towards the airport. Um, eventually, wait, wait, wait. It, it was you a hand flew that aircraft I hand with your hand aircraft. With well, just one, you know, it's, it's I, I got a joystick, it's not that hard. I know that's a nail biter, my friend. <laughs> it was, I bet they, if they had known that in the back, they probably all would have told me to stop. But I had a flight to catch. That's hilarious. So, you know, here you are, you're screaming down to get there. Your passengers, did they make any comments to you about? your approach or was it all good they're they're, no. used, they're used to you know flying. it was actually for <laughs> for the way it's presented um it sounds a lot more intense than it really was because because yeah. what happened is you know if you push a, a jet over and you know this when you push a jet over they're so clean what's going to happen it's yeah, going to accelerate gonna up yeah it's going to do 300 three even 350 knots i don't know if your plane's able to do that i think ours is 370 mm -hmm. is our max speed so we, I didn't want to do that because it's, as you do that, because we were so close, I couldn't let the speed build, build up. And so what I actually did around 18,000 feet is I pitched the nose up and I slowed down to less than 200 knots, which is our, our flaps one operating speed. 
and put the flaps down so I could make a more aggressive descent, but it was a slow speed. It was a slow speed, very controlled dive bomb, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not, it, even though I present it as, as very aggressive in the end for what they, for what they felt in the back, I, it was not, it was not all that bad. I did put the, had to put the gear down or I elected to put the gear down a, a little bit earlier. Cause again, introducing drag, I did not use the air brakes. So I put the, the gear down cause I was going to need to anyway, and just kind of slowly walked it back from there. And it was definitely a stabilized approach. I had power and I don't, I don't want any, any faces from, from Tony over there about my stabilized approach here. Um, and it was very controlled other than the fact that it was definitely, it was still windy down there. Yeah. And by the time you got to a few thousand feet above the ground, it was definitely, it was definitely kicking. Yeah. And um, let's talk about that for just a moment. For those listeners that may not have had these experiences, uh, controlling or commanding an aircraft, why is it so windy close to the ground? And I had a, a friend of mine gave an explanation to a passenger years ago. And I thought, man, that is such a great explanation. So air volume of air above earth is constantly moving. Okay. We can get into the details of the, 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 cir- the circular motion of the air, depending on the circumference or the, the rotation of the earth and all these terms that we've all learned in a private pilot uh, education. Right. But all we need to know is that it's it's a body of air that's constantly moving. And depending on where you are at any given time, it's moving in a different direction, not unlike a body of water that has currents and all these things. That's why it's all nautical, whether it's aviation or if it's uh, in the ocean or over water, it's all nautical. So you're, we're getting into kind of like fluid dynamics and that kind of thing, but which I don't want to get too much detail. But so when you're up in the air, the the winds are strong, but they're relatively consistent unless you're getting across like a, a low pressure system or uh, an area of turbulent air or, or high gradient of, of uh, pressure changes. But close to the ground, it always seems that the air is always more turbulent. And that's because you've got terrain. You have trees and buildings and mountains and hills and all this thing that the air is now going up and down and around. So when you're on a flight and you're at altitude and it's just like smooth, it's glass and it's all so nice. And then as you get closer to the airport on the descent, you can, as a, being a passenger in the back of the plane, you, you see the flaps, you can hear the flaps moving, you can hear the gear come down and the, and the airplane starts rocking rocking more and more up until the point where you touch down. And why? That's because closer to the ground, you have more external factors that make the air more turbulent. Whether the air is coming from a particular direction where there are a lot of buildings or mountains or air, you know, descending on the leeward side of a mountain range, that air can become more turbulent. So uh, that's why we often have turbulent air as we're landing or taking off, but then it smooths out a few minutes after departure. Um, the other thing you mentioned, which I found very interesting, was you talked about slowing down before you're going down, a term that we always talk about, especially in, a, in an instructor role or you know, at being in a position where you're teaching others. A lot of times, newer pilots or even experienced pilots that are maybe newer on that type of airplane, like migrating from a piston powered airplane over to a jet. They just want to push the nose over because 
they feel, well, okay, I'll push the nose over and bring the power back and that's enough. But as you mentioned, in a swept wing aircraft, very clean jet, it's going to speed up and it's going to speed up fast. A so lot. if you want to get to an airport that's, say, an equal distance ahead of you, uh, let's say 100 miles ahead, and you need to get to that airport and you need to start a descent, well, the airplane that just pushes the nose over and picks up to the speed to red line, say 350 knots, uh, and then at 10,000 feet, they have to slow down. So now they pull up on the nose, slow to 250 knots, and then push the nose over again at flight idle to maintain 250 knots below 10, which is a speed limit in the U.S. And here they are approaching the runway. Well, they're going to get there pretty fast because their ground speed is fast. But you mentioned that you did something that just shows amazing airmanship and you know this, this ability that you have to kind of see the big picture. You kept it smooth for your passengers, but you still did a relatively aggressive descent. And you did that by slowing down before you're pitching to go down. What? So you decreased your ground speed, meaning you gave yourself more time to get to the airport. So you have more time to lose altitude. Because if you're descending, and, and we calculate descents in aircraft by feet per minute. So if you're descending at 4,000 feet a minute, but your ground speed is high, you're maybe not going to lose as much altitude as if you're descending at the same 4,000 feet per minute, but your ground speed is low, relatively low. So slowing down the speed of the aircraft prior to, you know, it does two things. One, it lets you get more time under your belt to descend and lose that altitude. Also, it allows you to get under the limitation speeds for things like flaps and gear and, and whatnot. So to induce more drag onto the aircraft, and that is going to help slow you down as well. So you're taking a more than one principle here to get to your destination safely and not be unstabilized at the last second when you realize. And oh, there's crap. one other thing, really good point that you actually did bring up there just just about an, another minute ago that was part of the consideration is that the faster that you are going the more that turbulence is going to kick the airplane around ah, and yes. if you you're going to have the added you're going to have the the rather sizable added benefit of keeping it smoother in the back the slower that you are going and so that it was a, an additional benefit to slowing it down as we descended into that more turbulent air closer to closer to the ground through the valleys um, to be able to kind of soften that turbulence up as well. So there's multiple benefits besides just those two that you just mentioned, but, but also, you know, passenger comfort. Cause in the end, no matter what, whether you're flying, you know, a, a corporate board or an airliner full of passengers, nobody's going to want to get kicked around because you're trying to do 320 knots in moderate turbulence. And so that's, that was another, that was another great point that you had brought up there as well. Yeah, we have recommended uh, turbulent air penetration speeds. Speeds in aviation are measured as a V-speed. Um, so, and all aircraft have a limit to, if you, in, if you encounter moderate or greater turbulence, there is a VMO or MMO, uh, maximum Mach number or maximum uh, V-speed uh, to operate that aircraft in. And those are the limits but then there's also recommendations. So do you know the, the recommended turbulent air penetration speed on yours? Something? I don't need, don't ask me about. I, I, honest, I honestly couldn't tell you. I want to say 280, but don't quote me on that. 
280. Yeah, because like you said, that's a, that's a structural that's a structural limitation. There's a big difference between what the airplanes can be hand be able to handle and what the people that are in the back are going to be handled from right. a comfort standpoint. Right. So you don't want to take it to the limit because that's the limit of the airframe, not the limit of the uh, comfort. So we always kind of back it down. Um, I know in the uh, on the Embraer that uh, used to fly over at the Sandpiper Regional, uh, we had a 260 knots for 0.62, I believe it was for our company. Uh, if you encounter uh, moderate or greater turbulence. Now, uh, turbulence is another issue. Uh, passengers really, they think of all of it as turbulence, but it's not, is it? Uh, we have different classifications. We have what we call light chop, a moderate chop. Then you get into light turbulence, moderate turbulence. And then there's the dreaded thing you never want to hear is severe turbulence. Now, severe turbulence, if I remember my aeronautical information manual, which is where all this information can be found in the back of your far aim, uh, I believe severe turbulence is a loss of control of the aircraft. Is that... Yeah, that's something you never want to hear. I, doesn't, doesn't, if somebody calls severe turbulence, doesn't that close, like, airspace or something? I believe it can. Um, I can't tell you how many times I'm flying along. And ATC says, yeah, uh, severe turbulence reported by a citation jet at 35,000 feet. And you're like, whoa, where is that? I don't want to go anywhere near that. So, of course, now everybody's asking, oh, where did you say that severe turbulence was and who reported it? Now, if a citation jet, let's just say a small citation jet like a CJ-1, reports severe turbulence, that's pretty bad. If an Airbus or a, or a Boeing product <laughs> reports severe turbulence, <laughs> yeah, no one's going to go there. And it just happens to be because when you have an airplane with that much mass, it takes more energy to rock it around. You know, if anybody studies Newton's laws of physics, they know that the heavier mass aircraft, 180,000, 200,000 pound aircraft, if it's experiencing severe turbulence, and they can't control, man, that's, that's the no-go zone. And that, and that will shut down airspace for sure. If a small, I don't even know what a CJ-1 weighs, but let's just say a small Citation jet holds, what, six passengers? Uh, reports moderate to severe turbulence. It, it, more than likely, it's not severe unless they do lose control of the airplane. Um, but these are different classifications, and those are the limits, the extreme limits. Most of us experience chop, light chop, moderate chop, or light turbulence. Anything more than light turbulence, I'm already changing altitude, looking for vectors, working with ATC, working with the company. Uh, we have apps on our electronic flight bag or our tablet that we have in the, in the uh, cockpit at all times that has a constant connection to Wi-Fi. And we're constantly looking at the reports. Uh, our company uses something called WSI Weather. Um, it's one of the national weather services for aviators, and you know we it is very accurate in its turbulent projections and turbulent reporting. So we can even get uh, reports from other aircraft ahead of us uh, that they might be at a particular altitude and they're all experiencing the same kind of turbulent air, and we can avoid. So sometimes that seatbelt sign will go on, the captain will make a PA, and um, personally, I choose to when i was when responsible as pilot in command making those pas i chose not to use certain words in 
the airplane, like turbulence. Um, it's kind of like a buzzword that passengers gets kind of upset, scared, nervous sometimes. Um, so I usually use, oh, we're going to get some, some good bumps up ahead. You know, there's some weather that we're avoiding. I try to use that kind of language versus, well, ladies and gentlemen, there's a level five thunderstorm ahead with some moderate turbulence. Uh, we're going to ask everyone to sit down and put on their seatbelts. What? <laughs> there were turbulence? <laughs> so I try to use <laughs> words like bumps and, you know, some, some weather ahead we're avoiding and, you know, we're going to try to find a better altitude. Sorry about that, folks, you know. And so I, I feel that that does help the passengers. Um, for you, your, your owner probably has more familiarization with aviation being a, a private owner than, than some pilots do because, you know, have you ever experienced anything like that? turbulence of that nature unfortunately no i mean that's well actually like i can't say that i have experienced severe turbulence i can't say that it's something that you don't ever want to go through and i can say that there was lost control of the aircraft um this was a long time ago and it, it was thunderstorm related um it was you know i didn't have radar at the time and um you know that's kind of an, another story um you know, passenger comfort is, is obviously the big deal and and safety also goes along with that. There's never a time where you want to go. If you know something's going to be bad, don't go. Don't go there. The sky is big enough that we can have other options. Um, I, I think in my experience, most when you get into turbulence that is is severe is, is usually um, thunderstorm related. And you can see those, whether that's on radar or visually even in modern aircraft. And so go somewhere else. It's not worth it for multiple reasons. Yeah. My best turbulence story, which you've reminded me, uh, happened. I was a new hire at a regional airline and I'd been on the line for a good six months. So, I mean, enough to know better and to kind of have the jet really comfortable flying it, um, without any kind of tips or direction from the captain. And I flew with this very senior captain who came from a long line of pilots. I mean, his father was a DC-3 driver for United. We're talking classic tailwheel, Humphrey Bogart flying guy, you know? And so he grew up in the industry and had a reputation in the company of being uh, pretty much a mentor for, for a lot of people. And I was flying with him, and we had to do a flight where I was on a trip where if I was going to be later than midnight, I was going to go illegal for the next day, which was another trip. And so we kind of had that in the back of our minds. On top of that, we had thunderstorms in the Chicago area at night, and we knew that we had a very small window to get in. So here we are on the arrival into Chicago, and the aircraft in front of us did a go-around because of weather. So he and I both talked about that and said, listen, if we, if we have to do a go around because of weather, uh, more than likely with what are the picture that we see here on the radar and what we looked at prior to leaving, because this is, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but this is before iPads and smartphones with radar on them. Okay. I had, had a flip phone, I think at the time. <laughs> so, so all our knowledge of what was going on was either from messages, uh, text messages coming from dispatch or from what we printed out on the printer before we left our departure airport. So he's like, yeah, uh, we really don't have that much fuel to sit up here and hold for half an hour. So if we have to do a go around for any reason, 
He goes, and you're flying it. So, you know, if, if the weather's bad or you don't feel comfortable, let's just punch out, do a go around. And we're just going to go to our alternate, which was over in Peoria. And sure enough, the guy in front of us went around. We kind of talked about it. We started the approach. And as we were coming in, big red cell on the radar. Now, the radar screen that we have will show yellow, green, orange, and red. Red, you're dead. It's not, you don't want to fly in red. That's like hail or pretty solid precipitation, either frozen or otherwise. You're not going to fly in red. That's just a no-go. So yellow is usually light rain. Green is kind of heavy rain. And orange starts to get into the, the nasty stuff. So it was a big red cell right in front of us on the approach. We got out of there. We went to Peoria. And we were like number 20 on the ramp. This is an airport with like two gates. And there were 20 regional airplanes out there. And all diverted and most of them canceled um because of whatever reason and so what ended up happening was half the people that were on our flight we diverted to peoria they're like you know what i can just rent a car tomorrow morning i don't need to be in chicago tonight i'm just gonna rent a car i'm getting off the plane here and usually that's not an option but because of what was happening the the station allowed that so what they did was they took about 20 people off our airplane and then they added 20 people to our airplane from the other flights that had gotten canceled and they also were trying to get to Chicago. So the captain sat back and uh, this was a time where you, could, you still couldn't smoke in the cockpit, but he always had a cigarette in his front pocket and he would go excuse himself and go outside of security and go have a smoke and then come back to the cockpit and just tool, total like cool laid back guy, never, never saw him get upset, raise his voice. And he goes, well, I better make a PA. So he puts a cigarette over his ear. <laughs> and he says, oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. And uh, as you can tell, there's a little bit of weather in the uh, Chicago area that my first officer did a great job uh, flying that approach into the Chicago area. But that uh, thunderstorm cell is something that we just don't go through. So we came over here and diverted for those of you who are just joining us, welcome aboard. Well, we're not going to lie to you, ladies and gentlemen. It is uh, bumpy. It is really bumpy. We're going to call this moderate turbulence. And we're going. We're going tonight. We're just going to wait for the weather to pass. And our dispatcher is going to send us some paperwork. And once we take off, it's going to be bumpy. To the point where no one's getting up. Our flight attendant will not get up. No one will get up. The seatbelts will be on. And we're going to navigate our way back to Chicago. We're going to get you there. We're going to get you there safely, but it's going to be bumpy. So if you don't need to be there tonight and you don't like the bumps, just bring your call button and you can get off the plane and tomorrow's another day. And you know, ding, 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 like 12 people, like we don't need to be there tonight. We're going to get off. Thank you, captain, for giving me that, you know, tell, I don't like turbulence. Thank you so much. But 12 people got off. Guess what? 12 more people got on. So we went out again and he kind of repeated the same uh, PA, not, you know, not as lengthy. And <laughs> we closed the door. The guy in 1A was a, what we called a, uh, let's call it a titanium member. Okay. A legacy uh, or legacy junior over at Sandpiper. And uh, this titanium member was like, ah, if these guys were legacy pilots, 
They were being afraid of a little rain. This is ridiculous. I, I, I could have been there three hours ago. And the flight attendant's like, Did you, are you hearing this, Captain? He's like, yeah, I can hear him. He goes, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's going he's gonna to thank us when we get there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm sitting there like in awe. This guy is so cool. Nothing is getting past this guy. And so we take off and he goes, listen, you flew, you want to fly it there? You, you want me to fly? I don't care. You know, you, it's still your leg. You know, I'm like, um, yeah, if you're okay with it, I'll fly. It's a great experience. Uh, if I get tired or something, uh, you're like, listen, it's going to be bad. I mean, it's going to be safe. I'm going to keep us safe, but it's going to be bad. The autopilot, it might kick off because of the turbulence and you'll be hand flying it. Are you okay with that? I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah, captain for sure. He goes, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work the radios. I'm going to work the checklist. I'm going to talk to ATC. I'm going to get you left, right, up, down, whatever you need, but I'm going to take care of that. All you need to do is fly the airplane. And sure enough, we took off and about 10 minutes into the flight, I mean, this is like a 25 minute flight. This is not a long flight. About 10 minutes into the flight, we're getting kicked around so bad. We're, we've slowed down now to like 210 knots. We're just like going as slow as maneuvering speed as possible. And, you know, he's getting me left, go right 10 degrees left. And we got ATC was like, yep, you can clear to deviate any way you can to direct Chicago when able. You know? So, okay. And the autopilot kicked off and here I am hand flying this airplane. And it, we were bouncing around so bad that I had a hard time focusing on the PFD, on the primary flight display where all the instruments were. I had a hard time keeping that flight director. I mean, we were wings level. We were good. We were safe, but we were getting, my shoulder harnesses never came off. We were getting bounced around pretty good. About 10, 20 minutes later, we got on final. The air cleared up. We made a nice nighttime landing. It was a good landing. Got off the runway. Soon as we got to the gate, we opened the, the door of the cockpit. And the guy in 1A was green in the face. He had two sick bags, one in each hand. <laughs> he got off the plane without saying a word. Captain's like, oh, no, no, no. So he gets up and he's like, glad you joined us. Have a great day. <laughs> and then the guy gets off the plane, green in the face. Everybody else is like, thank you so much, Captain. Thanks for getting us here safely. You know, um, Worst turbulence I've ever experienced. And it really wasn't more than moderate. And we wouldn't have flown if it was more than that. It really wasn't more than moderate, but it, it kicked our butts. And that was the longest 35-minute flight I think I've ever been on, trying to focus on the PFD, you know. Now, I would argue that if the autopilot kicked off, that is a little bit worse than moderate turbulence. Well, the, the Embraer 145 had a kind of touchy, especially the older ones, had a little bit of touchy autopilot to where if the trim tab or the auto trim couldn't keep up with the changes because it was constantly trying to change and trim. And down. It, then one of the, the autopilot computer would say, okay, the, the trim tab's going crazy. I, I can't do this. You, you're gonna have to do this. So we did it. Now we were, it's kind of like popcorn in the sky. We were, you know, we'd had a cell, then we can make a left. Okay, now here, there's another cell. Okay, make a right. And we we're going up and down, left and right. And we were able to do it safely. And we stayed you know, far away from all the extreme cells at that time. And mind you, this is probably 16 years ago. So it was a long time ago before all this automation. Now we could just look at our EFB and download the radar return and kind of plot a course and then program that course into the FMS and then have the computer fly the best scenario. And now ATC's radars have been improved over the years and now they're getting a 3D image of radar returns so they can tell you to descend and climb from what they see on their screen. So technology has definitely improved and helped uh, with safety. That's why we don't see as many 
aviation disasters in the United States uh, is because of technology and, and what we have available at our fingertips. So, yeah, stay away from that stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Thunderstorms, definitely. You know, my, my turbulence story is thunderstorm related as well. You know, I, I was on one side. I, I diverted. Um, and I was still trying to get back to home base and I did not have radar. Um, I was just flying a twin turbocharged airplane as a Piper chieftain. Um, and I was, I was in Kansas and I was going to Denver and I could, I could see that there was a line of thunderstorms. And, and basically I, I asked for help from, from Denver center and like your story, this was probably about 15 years ago. About maybe 14 years ago, um, and they did not have a whole lot of of information either because they were basically not able to give me any help. And I picked what I thought at the time because it was dusk. Um, there was still a little bit of light, but mostly dark, and so I couldn't necessarily see all the clouds. And I thought what I picked what I thought was a hole. And next thing I knew, there was lightning above me and below me and to my left and to my right. And, you know, I was in a 45 degree bank and I had no intention of being in a 45 degree bank a oh couple different times. Yeah. Um, and so I chose to keep going, not because I, I not because I was trying to I was trying to get to where I was going. But at that point, if, if you're in 45 degree uncommanded banks, the last thing I wanted to do was start a turn a self-initiated turn and then get bumped, you know, into a 60 degree bank. And so I just elected that, you know, I could kind of see the other side. I didn't think it was, it was very much. Um, and I did come through and everything, you know, everything was fine. There was no damage to the airplane or anything, but it was definitely, um, I, I was scared. I mean, I should not have been there. Um, but I didn't know that until after the fact, unfortunately. Um, and you were a single pilot too, right? And that was, that was single pilot because that was, that was a cargo, a small cargo operator. And so it was just me and boxes in the back, fortunately. Um, but thunderstorms are not something to be trifled with. When you talk about turbulence, thunderstorms will have them a hundred percent of the time. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie that they, they tell us, they, they tell us to, to, They've heard around thunderstorms like 20 miles. We definitely don't always do 20 miles, but nobody goes through them. Whether, you know, your passenger in 1A, well, if they're legacy pilots, they, you know, they'd be fine. No, if anything, I think that legacy airline pilots or big three, big three airline pilots or the major airline pilots are probably a little bit more conservative Absolutely. than, than the regionals in my experience, actually. Yeah. And um, we'll go three, 400 miles out of our way to go around weather and we'll and have the fuel to do that. Because we have because. planners with that. We, I mean, if you look at the Legacy Airlines uh, SOC, um, it looks like NASA. It, it looks like, you know, ground control to Major Tom, man. This is, you go in there, they've got the big screen up on the wall, and they've got the, all the, the radar and the weather around the world. And they have different departments with the desks, and they got the lights over the desks. And in case they have a, a problem... You know, the light turns red and then the supervisors come over and help them with their other because every dispatcher has like four or five flights, if not a dozen flights going on at any given time. So if they have one flight that has an emergency or a problem, they can they can change the color of the light over their desk from green to yellow to red. And if it's red, they've got an emergency. And next thing you know, that desk is surrounded by other supervisors that are plugging into the, the radios and, and, you know, getting rid of all the other flights 
off of their desk so they can concentrate just on that one flight. So, I mean, the, the modernization and the technology that is all there behind every single flight in America on a 121 operator, at least this is, we're talking airlines. Um, it's, it's huge. So there's a, a level of comfort there when you have that behind you and a second pilot in there, whether that's a FO or captain, doesn't matter. There's a second brain in the cockpit. Um, but when you're single pilot, IFR with weather and you're by yourself and you're, and, and you, the little wheels are turning and you're like, did I make a good decision? Uh, I got no one to bounce this off of. <laughs> right. It can and be a lot very of the times unnerving. You don't know if it's the right decision until, until like in my case, until you actually go through it, we don't have, you know, even now, even, you know, what you were describing, all, all of those SOCs um, and all those people that staff them are in the name of safety, but there are still a lot of smaller airlines and cargo operators out there that don't, that don't have that. And, and really that's, that's where pilots start out. It's like you and me, you know, with all this experience and all the things that we've seen, we're not the people that are trying to do that. It's the people who don't know any better. And they sit here and listen to us, except until you actually experience something like that, it's kind of aviation such a backwards industry. You know, the hardest things that you do are the things that you do first. And then the easiest things that you do are the things that you do last. It's, it's so, it's so yeah. bizarre to me. Well, it, it kind of is a way to weed out those that maybe shouldn't be doing this or they're doing it for the wrong reason. And which we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit later in the show. Um, you know, the, getting into aviation is a big deal. And there's so many of us that, you know, as children or as uh, young adults, we look up and, or we go to air shows and we, you know, download pictures of airplanes and put them on our wallpapers on our, on our technology and like, oh, someday I'm going to be a pilot. But then they go and get their private pilot license and maybe the hand-eye coordination isn't there or maybe grasping the concepts of three-dimensional flight might not be there. Maybe the hand, you know, maybe the the terminology is too difficult, but whatever the reason, that's, I think, why it's so hard at the beginning. Um, you're, you're drinking from that fire hose, you're learning all these concepts, and at the same time, it's weeding out those that maybe get airsick just at the thought of going flying. They love the idea of flying, but they get airsick, and they can't, you can't command an airplane and, and, and get airsick. I mean, we all kind of have those, um, especially the instrument, um, issues, the visual cues that might you might think you're turning when you're not. And we all get those kind of uh, visual uh, distortions in flight. But some people just get them so continuously that maybe they got to find something else to do. That makes it hard to do it as a career. <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, stay with us a lot more with Aviator Tony and Captain Roger right after the break. I wanted to talk a little bit about some good news, um, and that is, you know, Rob and I work for Legacy Airlines, and recently it was announced that there was going to be a big displacement, meaning they're going to park a bunch of airplanes, they were not going to use them anymore, there were older fleets, and in an effort to save money in reaction to this global economic crisis that we're in, they were parking airplanes. And that meant that there were pilots that no longer had an airplane to fly. Um, I have a few friends over, not just at Legacy, but also at Acme Airlines and at the 
domestic air that are going through these kind of shifts in the airports and airplanes that they're currently flying. So these displacement bids have come out. And the way that works is go, okay, if you do not have the seniority enough to maintain your current position on your particular airplane or particular airport as your home base, then what's going to happen is you're going to be displaced out of that base and you're going to be assigned to something else. So they don't just arbitrarily assign those things to you. Uh, you put in a preference. So you put in there what your top five displacement preferences are. And I did that. I actually did that for, I think, 12 <laughs> different uh, airports and, and airplanes that I'm willing to go to in case I can no longer hold my position. Currently, I'm Los Angeles-based Airbus A320 family of aircraft uh, pilot, and I was worried that I might get displaced. Well, the results are out. The final bid came out, and I am very happy to announce that I did not get displaced out of base, nor did I get displaced out of the aircraft. So I am fortunate enough to say that I am still an LAX Airbus pilot. Yes, thank you. I uh, text messaged uh, our buddy Rob D, who unfortunately was not able to make the show today, but I asked him, I said, hey man, did you check the bid? How are you looking? He's like, I'm good. Same, same. So he is still a Dallas, Fort Worth 737 pilot. So Congratulations to you, Rob, and, uh, you know, thank goodness I'm still here and I'm still flying. Um, so for all of those of you who were displaced, uh, you know, my hat's off to you. I wish you the very best. If there's anything that, that we can do here on Squawk Ident uh, and to talk about it and to see where you're going and wish you luck, absolutely reach out to us. And listeners can do that as well by going to our website and reaching out to us via the Contact Us tab. And that's at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. But there's also a reason, I think, that I didn't get displaced. And that's because Legacy Airlines, at least, uh, of, of the, all the major airlines between Delta, American, United, Southwest, um, they've all kind of gone through this process of trying to find ways to not furlough because for one, they, they had a stimulus package that said you can't furlough until October 1st. And for two, furloughing does cost money. So it has to be really severe for you to furlough. Um, and at Legacy, they've done a few things which are voluntary leave of absences and voluntary permanent leave of absences. And so they've offered this yet again. And in a uh, company email here, for August of 2020, the voluntary leaves of absences have been updated. Now, the VPLOA, or the Voluntary uh, Permanent Leave of Absence, is open for pilots that are 62 years or older as of the 31st of August, and they will be paid out 50 hours a month until their 65th birthday to participate in a permanent leave of absence. And this is a very generous package. Um, there are many that have already taken these uh, leaves of absences, the permanent ones, and they're going to be offering it yet again. So this is, this is a great, great news. I mean, can you imagine you're 62, 63 years old? You know, usually you're flying 70, 75 hours a month, and now you're going to get 
paid 50 hours a month to stay home, I, I would, I would take it, <laughs> you know, unless economically it becomes an issue, but I would definitely take it. There are other, there are two other options that the company is currently offering. It's uh, pilots. One is the, uh, the voluntary short-term leave of absence or the VSTLOA. Uh, the voluntary short-term uh, is either for a one-month, three-month, or six-month period of time where the company will pay you 55 hours a month of pay credit to stay home. Now, from what I understand, if you're on it and you decide you want to come back, there's a process that you can do that. So let's say you take a six-month leave of absence and after three months you go, ah, you know what, I, I got to come back. I believe there is a process through their union, pilot union, that you can apply for, to come back earlier. Um, the third option, which is kind of something that has always been off and on offered at most major airlines, is the voluntary extended leave of absence. Um, airlines usually offer this. This is an unpaid leave of absence, uh, and they offer it when they have plenty of staffing. When staffing is tight, you can request it, but th that's unlikely to happen. Now, the voluntary extended leave of absence, you're not going to get paid, but let's say you need to like be out for a year or two because you have a, a company that you're trying to start up, and so you want to take a leave of absence but keep your job. So in case it doesn't work out, you can come back. Um, that's being offered now too. So between the three options, this is going to be huge to help prevent furloughing at Legacy Airlines. So kind of good news, good to hear. Uh, hopefully the pilots that feel like they can take advantage of these offerings will do so and help out the more junior guys so that everybody who wants to work can continue to work. And this is good news. Roger, you talked about your trip this last week. You made your flight. You flew on a airline to get back to home base. How was that experience? Yeah, I didn't have any, any complaints. One of the changes that we, I, I guess a, a, a I hate to put it this way, but a, a fortunate consequence of of this COVID nineteen scenario was that in order to reduce our exposure, it it was agreed that we would fly first class um, when we were when it was available. Um, you know, so we we actually often fly on Southwest, which obviously doesn't have South, or first class rather, um, which which is fine too. Um, but we were able to fly on a united flight and we we did fly first class we did make the flight we were the last ones on we we made it with only two minutes to spare and they closed the door right behind us um you know flying air, air travel is definitely a little bit different i'm happy to say that the airports are a little bit full uh fuller than they have been um you know, we flew on a Embraer 175 from Eagle to Denver, and we had about an hour and 40-minute layover or so, and then is an Airbus 319, actually, that we flew from Denver back to San Diego. And definitely more people on the airplanes now, but the experience overall, um, I'm happy to report, was about what I would expect from, from the airlines these days. It's kind of a no frills experience for the most part. Um, you know, I, I one thing that that was, did strike me a little bit 
um, that you that you might talk about later is that they were still serving alcohol in the first class cabin. I think that some of the airlines are, are going to start getting away from that. Um, but that was a little bit of an, you know, something that was a little bit different because I know that that's that's starting to come a little bit to the forefront of the of the airline discussion now with everything that's going on. Yeah. And I totally understand why. As a matter of fact, since you mentioned it uh, from an article that was posted uh, just, well, yesterday. Uh, timeout.com. I'll put the article in the show notes here. Delta, American Airlines, and others are banning alcohol on flights. And no, you cannot bring your own booze instead. Uh, from wearing masks to blocking certain seats, almost all aspects of getting on a plane have changed in the last few months. But one thing we hoped would stay the same forever, enjoying a tiny bottle of alcohol while at 30,000 feet above the earth. And it has now been banned from some airlines. On Tuesday, American Airlines and Delta both announced that they would stop selling alcoholic beverages on flights. They announced uh, this as airlines are scrambling to minimize interactions between the crew and passengers and revise their food and drink services as a whole. European Airlines EasyJet and KLM and Virgin Australia also announced that they are suspending drink service. Delta Airlines won't serve alcohol on domestic flights or within the Americas, but beer, wine, and spirits can be found on all other international flights. On American Airlines, food and drink service in the main cabin will be limited according to flight length and destination, and alcohol will only be offered on long international flights or in first-class passengers or to first-class passengers on any flight. So banning alcohol isn't the only change. Many airlines are limiting drink options to water-only and only offering a pre-sealed snack on their flights. This really might be another reason to wait to book that vacation until we're all just itching to go. Um, you know, this article, when I read it, I, I wasn't surprised. Uh, at Legacy, uh, they were giving you a little baggie, a little paper baggie, as you boarded the aircraft, and it has a bottle of water in it, a little bit of hand sanitizer, and like a, a snack pack, you know, like a cereal bar of some kind or something to munch on or nibble on while you're flying. And we did have, up until I flew last, which was last week, uh, uh, late last week, um, we still were serving alcohol to those that wanted it. And it did create a little bit of issue. And uh, I'm referring to my experience personally I had on actually my last flight, which was uh, Chicago O'Hare to Los Angeles. And halfway through the flight, we had the flight attendants call up and say, hey, uh, we may have a problem here. <laughs> I've, got a, uh, I've got some passengers that are getting ready to fight, you know, and we're like, well, what's going on, you know, and you know, what, what do we need to do here? And she's like, hold on, hold on the number four flight attendant took care of it. I'm like, wait, 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 what, what happened? So I guess what happened was there was a young man who was having some kind of panic attack or anxiety. Um, he had the mask on as is required now on most airlines to wear the mask throughout the flight. Uh, at legacy, we were, uh, requiring the mask as you board and then once you're on the airplane, if you decided to take the mask off in order to drink something or to eat something or whatever reason, unless you had a medical condition saying you can't wear a mask, that you had to wear the mask at all times. And this young man who was having a little bit of a, a panic attack uh, took his mask off 
And the guy that was sitting next to him, or at least across the middle the side of the empty middle seat, was going, is this guy is this guy having COVID? What, what the hell? And the flight attendant came over and talked to him. He said, no, sir, uh, settle down. He's having an anxiety attack. He's going to be fine. This is not COVID-related. Just, just relax, and, and we're taking care of it. So she brings him a, a cup of ice, and you know, he's chewing on ice. It's one of, the, one of the ways we can help people that are having kind of a panic attack to kind of just force them to breathe and calm down. Um, meanwhile, this passenger that was agitated looks over, and he sees across the aisle from him two individuals that had their mask down because they were drinking uh, a glass of, of alcohol or adult beverage. And he goes, why don't, why the F don't you have your mask on? And it's like, and the other guy is like, mind your own effing business. Next thing you know, there's all the passengers in the row ahead and a row behind. You guys need to shut the F up. And next thing, <laughs> it was like profanity, like laden event happening. And it all just escalated like gas on a flame. And the number four flight attendant that was back there, that's when, that's when the number one called us and said, hey, I've got a problem back here. Just give you a up. These guys are getting ready to fly. She just says, and she told us later that in her 15 years of flying, that she had never yelled like that to a group of passengers. She's like, all of you people need to settle down right now. I swear to God, the captain's going to land this airplane at the first airport, and all of you are going to jail. And she said, everybody just put their mask on, <laughs> quietly sat in their seat, made sure their seatbelts were on. And it was like crickets. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, you know, passengers behaving badly is happening more often because people are afraid of, you know, contracting something They're They feel forced to, submit themselves to being in close proximity to others because they they want to fly they have to fly for whatever reason i i couldn't tell you it doesn't matter but these instances were happening i I was hearing about them more often so the fact that they decided to suspend drink services uh, and limit everything doesn't surprise me as a matter of fact i received a company email just yesterday indicating that effective immediately, that not only are passengers now required to don a face covering during the boarding process, they're also required to have them on at all times during flight, unless they are drinking water or sipping water or having a bite to eat or something, because we can't deny people that. Um, But they need to have it on. And if a flight attendant asks one of them, a passenger, to don the mask, because they're not doing one of those things and they don't have a medical condition preventing them from putting it on that the company will now blacklist them for a lack of a better term. They'll, they'll put them on the do not fly list uh, and, and they will be listed as you can no longer fly because you're not complying with instructions to wear a mask and that's the safety of others. And additionally, and I know we've talked about this on previous shows the flight crew is also now required to don a face covering at all times. Whether you're six feet away, within six feet, or 60 feet away, anytime you are in the public eye, all flight members must wear a face covering at all times. So, uh, whereas in the past it was, you know, your discretion if you can maintain safe distance, social distancing, you know, it was not a big deal. But now it's a requirement. And 
our uniform companies are now producing company-issued face masks that you will wear as part of your uniform. So, And that's not just for the pilots, but for everyone. Uh, anyone that's in the customer's visual perspective, uh, being in the terminal, gate agents, ramp, uh, ramp agents that might be inside, flight attendants, pilots, any, anyone, baggage handlers that are in contact with the public, everyone has to be wearing a, a face mask or face covering at all times. So this is looks like going to last a lot longer than we initially thought. Um, and with all the other articles I'm reading about how a vaccine is not practical and, and you know, that it'll probably be more like a, a flu shot where you can get it every year to help prevent, but will not prevent this. This might be a way of life for a long time. What I also wanted to talk about was I was approached on that very last trip, uh, that I did, uh, actually not the last one, but the one before that it was a DCA to to LA. It's actually LA to DCA and then DCA back. And the flight attendant, uh, the number four flight attendant was a young man who approached the captain and I and said, Hey, uh, he starts asking questions while we're checking into the hotel, you know, up there. And you know, I forget what he was asking, but something to do with the flight. And after about the second question, I'm like, so are you interested in getting in aviation? And his eyes lit up. And he's like, yeah, how'd you know? I'm like, well, usually when Somebody ask a couple questions in a row and, you know, most flight attendants don't, they don't, they just don't give a shit. <laughs> Honestly, they're like, yeah, whatever. You guys don't do anything up there and read the paper and drink your coffee. Yeah. It's like, so the fact that you're asking these kind of questions show that you're interested, you know, what, how far are you into your exploration of this journey in aviation? And he goes, well, you know, I've been a flight attendant for five years and, and I really, I'm starting to, to do my research and I want to take lessons somewhere and get started and hopefully one day fly for legacy airlines. And I said, wow, that's wonderful. So we started to talk and a lot of the questions he asked reminded me of a lot of the questions that we get as aviators when we meet somebody new, especially younger people. How do I get in aviation? And, you know, Roger, I've got you on the show. You've been instructing for a long time in, in a various amount of degrees of, of the type of students you've had from, sure. from first timers to, uh, people that are getting behind the, the stick of a, of a King air and, and flying around a, a turboprop. So what advice would you give to someone who comes up to you and says, yeah, I'm thinking about getting in aviation. What should I do? Well, that's kind of a loaded question that, that probably has, you know, a few follow-up questions, if you will. Um, you know, the the first of which I think that's that's something to consider is: Are you looking to do this as a career, or are you looking to do this in terms of a hobby? Um, there's a lot of different options in terms of flight training. I think there's there's probably a, a, some fewer options now, just with with the consolidation of a lot of things, and a lot of it also, in my opinion, is is going to be personality driven and what you think is going to work best for you. And, and the primary thing that I'm referring to in terms of that is, you know, how hard, how fast do you want to do it? And do you want to have something be a little bit harder or do you want to have something be more at a go, go at your own pace? Because I think that, that definitely the, the fastest way to do something in the most structured and the most airline type training environment is going to be one of your part 141 schools 
where they're going to pretty much draw everything out for you from, I mean, and a lot of these schools now, they'll take you from, from zero hours all the way up to your flight instructor through your flight instructor where you're going to get your commercial certificate, you're going to get your multi-engine certificate. And a lot of these places also, um, depending where you go, will very well might hire, hire you as a flight instructor in the same school. And you can kind of, you can do everything in one fell swoop. And for the people that, there's, there's two things to that. Um, those generally, in my experience, are going to cost a little bit more money but they will also prepare you more for the airline training style and lifestyle mm -hmm. more so than the other option, which is your, your part 61 or the quote unquote, go at your own pace program. This is much, some, much more something that you can do as an a la carte kind of thing. You can do a lesson when you can fit it into your schedule. You'll you're going to have the same flight instructor. Um, I think it's definitely good to keep the same instructor um, to the to the best extent possible for each rating. Um, but you can work it into the schedule that you're working with at the time. This will probably take you a little bit longer, but it's going to be something I think that's a little bit more comfortable and more at the at the go at your own pace kind of thing. And I think that which program is best for you depends on is going to differ from per, from person to person. Um, I kind of did a little bit of both programs personally. I did all of my stuff part. I did the beginning stuff part 61 because I was going to school. I was in college at the time. Um, I think I've mentioned that on the show before. Mm -hmm. And so I needed something with the flexibility. Um, and I could fly a smaller airplane and the smaller airplane and an older airplane. They're typically found at your part 61 is going to cost less money right. than a Cessna 172 SP or a Diamond Star, or even a Cirrus. You know, you're probably talking about half the cost of a of an hourly rental. Whereas a lot of these 141 schools, you're going to fly better equipment. I'm, I won't. You know, it's going to be better, nicer equipment. Yeah. Um, and better does not necessarily equate to safer. I want to make sure. That I want to put that caveat in there. Better does not mean safer in this instance. Um, and so I did everything kind of on my own until I graduated from college. And then I knew that I was going to get into this as a career. And then I did the ATP program, which while not 141 is very structured, you get X amount of hours to make it to your multi-engine, you get X amount of hours to make it for your instructor, uh, for each stage of your instructor, which for me worked out okay, because I guess for lack of better terms, I was prepared for it. I was ready for it and I didn't struggle with it. But for some people, they might not, they might need more than five hours in order to get ready for a check ride. But under some of these programs, you're going to go for your check ride, whether you're ready or not, because that's what the, that's the next the lesson. program cost entails. Right. That's what it is. And so depending on, and, and that's something that each individual, I think, is going to have to decide for themselves. Um, what's going to work better is to kind of look at the pros and the cons to each and, and how it's going to work for each person individually, because each way will get, will get someone that want, that really wants it. will get them to, to the finish line. It's just how you want to go about doing it. My big thing, make sure, you know, aviation is, is a rather expensive mistress and, Make sure that it's something that you want because once you put the money into it, you know, you're probably going to be spending $200 just to get the first hour, you know, your first one hour of instruction. Yeah. By the time you're doing 150 for an airplane and a 50 for an instructor, and that adds up really quick. Um, 
make sure that it's something that you're committed to and you're ready to do because it's expensive, but it's also fun. Make sure you're committed to it. I think is those, those are kind of the initial, the main thoughts that I have in yeah. terms of training. Yeah. And, and you mentioned kind of starting out part 61. Um, I did the same. And I think, I think that was a huge cost savings for me because I went through the, at the time, the King school, the Cessna program, and I did everything, all my ground schools online on, I had a CD-ROM and, you know, a diskette, and then I had to upload that and print out the certificate that I completed that coursework and sent it in, uh, after my, my actual flight training with my instructor and they would review what the lesson entailed. And then we'd go out and physically do that in the aircraft. Um, it was a self-paced program. It worked out financially to be a, a absolute minimal cost to me. Um, and I really got my feet wet without committing right away to a big program where, you know, it's going to be more regimented and, and, that's the other issue with those 141 schools is it is a much like it's an upfront commitment instead yeah. of the pay as you go, if you will, that you were just talking about. Yeah, because they'll tell you, oh, you'll save all you'll save twenty thousand dollars if you do the whole program, pay for the whole program right now. You know, and, and here we have if you lenders. make it through. Right. And, and, you know, I can I know probably 40 percent of the people that went when my 141 school that I went to that didn't finish it. They just said, oh, it's too expensive or it's not for me. And, you know, try to get their money back or whatever. Um, my suggestion is always start out very slow, doing the homework, uh, doing the research, uh, hanging out at the airport, go to the local FBO, ask questions, ask to get it, and don't sign anything. Don't sign up for it. Just ask questions. Um, go online, and there are plenty of books. I just looked up online. You know, you don't have to go and buy the Jeppesen Complete guide to private pilot course, which is like an $84 textbook that has everything in it, you can go with a more inexpensive book, uh, the complete private pilot, the ASA book, that's $19.99. Uh, Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, a little dry book, but, you know, in terms of terms, uh, AOPA.org is a great organization. They have a segment of their website that's open to anyone. You don't have to be an AOPA member to to uh to look at their flight training section but they have some very limited uh programs there that you can participate in so there's plenty of opportunity out there uh there's a uh private pilot kit by aircraft spruce for 136 dollars, and it has like five books an e6b a little flight bag a pilot log book you know all the little nuances that you might need at the beginning um for relatively cheap you can start your at least your technical knowledge um getting familiar with terms things like that i've always said that aviation is like learning four foreign languages at the same time you have the the foreign language that might be foreign to you about aeronautics which you're going to have to understand and comprehend um, then you have the term of systems of oh, the airplane. How does the airplane work? How does the airplane fly if you turn the power off? Doesn't the engine die? No, it doesn't. Why? Okay, we'll explain. Um, so then you have the terms of the ATC and instruments and and radio frequencies. And then you have the term of talking on the radio. And, and we haven't even scratched the surface with the weather and everything else. I mean, these are all aeronautical terms, but you know, there's a lot going on. And it's a, a just a plethora of knowledge, and it's a wonderful thing to get into. 
Um, and to find out how committed you are, I always say, make a goal, set a goal and a time frame to work on a private pilot license and find out if financially you can do it. And if you can do it by paying cash as you go, even better. That way you can stop at any time and you don't feel obligated to continue. And that's, if you get your private pilot license and you're like, that's it, I'm hooked, I'm done, this is it, this is a career for me. Um, whether you want to do it as a hobby, maybe buy your own airplane someday, fly GA the rest of your life, or if you want to fly freight and be the next Amazon Prime pilot or FedEx or UPS or whatever, um, or you want to fly for uh, a major airline. Uh, either way, it all starts at the beginning. You just have to get your foot in the door. You just have to ask a lot of questions. And we've said it before, a flight instructor is key. Don't just go for your first, oh, I'm your flight instructor. Oh, okay. And I've had issues, <laughs> especially at the beginning. I, I went through a few. But we just didn't jive, and that's okay. Um, but there's plenty of ways to get into aviation. And we here at Squawk Ident love the idea that we are getting at least that spark going for some young aviators, um, talking about all the stories we've had experienced on the flight line. And, uh, and, and if it can help clarify anything, that's, that's what we're here for. So give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And the best way to do that is through our website. Uh, you can DM us as well through our social media accounts. Squawk Ident is pretty much everywhere. Um, and I just want to say thank you, Roger, for, for sharing uh, this episode with me. Uh, always a pleasure to, uh, to speak with you about aviation and the journey of aviation that, that uh, we've experienced thus far in our careers. Um, lots more to talk about. Uh, we just don't have that much time. I know you've got uh, pressing issues, as do I, um, this evening. So I want to say thank you again uh, for, for sitting down with me. Absolutely. And, you know, for all those aspiring aviators out there, you know, like the, the flight attendant on your one flight, I hope that I hope that this was a, uh, a good episode. We could talk about a little bit turbulence and a little bit some flying and getting into aviation. And so hopefully this was some, um, a good show for for that crowd that's out there. Absolutely. And I'm very excited. I've got some, you know, pretty exciting episodes coming up and uh, it's been kind of difficult to kind of get all our schedules to mash up but uh i'll kind of save it for as they happen because i don't want to spoil anything but some really interesting exciting aviators coming up on squawk ident here in the near future so stay tuned for that well i just want to take this time again to thank all the frontline workers out there the doctors the nurses pharmacists emts medical techs firefighters law enforcement grocery store employees truck drivers amazon workers and of course all the airline employees that show up every day to work to provide the essential services that we do and you know it feels good to see our flights filling up uh an article I read indicated that uh, Legacy Airlines is at about 55% capacity in terms of what they were doing this time last year, in terms of how many flights are operating. 55% uh, with, uh, they were filling them up, 75% capacity over a few days. Uh, so of the, of the f seats available per flight, 75 of those seats are filling up. So, you know, with percentages, you got to be careful because you got to understand the source and, you know, 
are we talking about 100% of the flight being full or only that 85% that we vowed not to go above? And, I, and so in terms of the flights being full, they're full. Uh, they're as full as we can get them. And that's wonderful. Thank you to all of you out there flying because it, it really is a reflection of our economy and how we're going to get over this hump and get the world rotating again in the right direction and hopefully a better world at that and we want to know are you enjoying squawk ident the best thing you can do is share your experience and your feedback with us either through our website or through some of the podcast apps that you're out there uh, i love reading about all of your uh, reviews and your experiences by listening to squawk ident keep them coming we love hearing about it uh, you can be a part of the show as well and leave audio feedback on the website. Uh, just click on the Contact Us tab, and from there, you can leave a short 90-second audio of what you like about the show or what you want to hear more of, and we'll be happy to play that as well. You can also contribute to the show. That absolutely helps us out with costs for production of the podcast and marketing expenses and you can do so right there on the homepage. scroll to the bottom and you can become a producer and with that you'll get recognized for all of your efforts to help contribute to the show facebook instagram twitter and now youtube you can all search squawk ident podcast or aviator toning and squawk ident to follow on the socials one final thank you to Mr. Captain Roger, who has been a wonderful inspiration to me. Uh, I love having the opportunity to sit down and speak with you about you know, your opinions on both the industry and aviation in general, and the stories that, that you share with all of us have been great to listen to and to hear. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Tony. It's been uh, it's been great to be part of this journey with you, and and you know, on behalf of myself, and you know, I know Rob also, especially, and and all your other listeners. Thank you for doing what you do. We appreciate it, um, and I know you got some great plans coming up uh, for for hopefully some great shows, and and for everyone else out there also. Just like you know, like Tony said, by all means, we'd love to talk about what you want to hear about. Um, so if you've got ideas for shows. Um, I know, you know, for Tony and myself, we'd love to, uh, to hear what you guys think and, and talk about what you want us to. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to this Grateful Aviator and these Grateful Aviators. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. See you, everyone. <laughs>